With an increasing number of people doing business online, security is increasingly becoming a top concern. I'll highlight a couple of reasons why, if you haven't already, you may want to consider getting a security certificate installed for your site, and that goes even if you're not accepting payments. Plus, pricing. It's a tough thing to gauge, especially if you're new to selling digital products or offering online services. Today, I'll take some time to provide you with some tips for how to lay out and structure your pricing tables to ensure they're as user-friendly and sale-converting as possible. All this and more on The Rightly Design Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is The Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is The Rightly Designed Show. So HTTPS, or security certificates as they're also known, is becoming increasingly prominent among websites. So if you've heard me talk about this in the past, you probably remember me mentioning that it's pretty important, especially if you're going to be hosting an online shop. If you're going to be accepting any type of payment on your website, it's going to be essential that you have an HT, uh, an, a security certificate installed and that you are serving all of your data over HTTPS. All that that does, if you're not too familiar with how security certificates work, is it just ensures that there is a secure connection. It ensures that the person's connection from their web browser to the server and back to them is completely encrypted and it's not something that somebody can easily intercept. If it were not you know, secure, then it would be a fairly easy thing for a hacker or for somebody who really knew what they were doing to be able to intercept that data. So with a lot of browsers today, I think Google Chrome is one of them. I think Firefox and Safari both do this as well. But an increasing trend with a lot of browsers is to is to display a number of warnings or errors if you are filling out a form that includes a password or or payment information uh, that is not secure. So browsers are starting to advance as well. Uh, just as the internet becomes more reliant on people purchasing things and some people not necessarily being aware of uh, when things are secure and when they're not, browsers are becoming a little bit more stringent in what they are throwing warnings and errors for. And it's really just good practice anyways to have an HTTPS connection for your website. And I recently came across an article uh, it's in a it's on a website called uh, movingtohttps.com, and they just outlined five really solid reasons. I've heard a lot of good reasons kind of floating out there as to why, even if you're not currently hosting an online shop or selling products online, why it's still a good idea to switch over to an HTTPS connection for your website. So here are some of the, the, the top five reasons why they gave, and I think they're pretty good. So uh, the first one is for the privacy of your site's visitors. And it says HTTPS encrypts the requests and responses between your site and its visitors. This protects them from a range of security issues, such as a man-in-the-middle attacks, which would allow people to spy on your site users. So similar to what I mentioned with the specific instance, if you were accepting payments or you were sending passwords, if there was somebody in the middle, they'd be able to intercept that data. 
Now, uh, if they're submitting any type of information at all, even if that's something as simple as an email address, it's nice to be able to provide the visitors of your website the peace of mind of knowing that you've taken that extra step to ensure that even that no matter how you know supposedly nominal you may consider the information, they can have the peace of mind of knowing that whatever they're submitting through your site, through you know, through the site that you have provided for them as a means to be able to communicate with you or to provide information or content, they can have the peace of mind of knowing that it's being submitted securely. So that can go for even as something as simple as a contact form. If you're asking for people to fill out a lot of information, you may not be asking necessarily for a credit card number. You may not be asking for a password, but you may be asking for a number of, you know, not necessarily personal, but uh, wide ranging responses that includes a lot of details or information that they really would prefer to keep between you and them. Again, this depends on the type of website that you run. But a lot of this comes down to being sensitive to that person's privacy as well as that person's security. So HTTPS is a great way to ensure that the entire browsing experience, even if somebody's not submitting, again, passwords or credit card information is remaining secure for them. Number two, gain trust from your users and improve conversions. Having HTTPS helps instill trust with your users that you care about their security. This can be especially true if EV certificates uh, with EV certificates that show users the company's name. So this one's a little bit, it just kind of depends on how far you want to go with your security. It is true that you can actually go out there and you can get a security certificate. A lot of times it'll be a little bit more expensive because you have to go through some extra some extra hoops and hurdles to be able to get them done. But you'll notice this with a lot of bigger companies. It'll say, you know, for example, if you're going to Stripe or something, you know, their website to sign in and to manage some of your payment gateway information. Usually it'll say like Stripe Inc. next to the lock and the security. So they've got an extra, uh, they've actually registered their company name with the specific uh, certificate that they're using. So you can do that. And if you're able to do that, that's a great way to go. If not, uh, you can always just start out with an SSL certificate, um, just a generic SSL certificate that's assigned to you. Number three, Seen the, quote, not secure warnings in in browsers lately? So this is something I mentioned previously, but it says pages with logins, password inputs, credit cards, and similar now show as not secure in the latest versions of Google Chrome and Firefox. Others will be soon to follow. So again, this is one of those things where if you are uh, accepting any type of sensitive information, it's pretty much a must. So that a lot of modern browsers now are actually going to start throwing warnings and errors. If you're accepting any type of password, so if you've got like uh, a membership site or if you've got a area on your website where people log in, if you do not have a security certificate, it's going to start throwing errors in Google Chrome and Firefox specifically. I would imagine that uh, Safari... And it's very likely that Microsoft's Edge are going to follow suit really close behind those two. But again, a lot of people, I think it was up to like 49% of users are now using Google Chrome. So it's probably not a good idea to have half of the people visiting your website seeing errors. So again, if you t accept any type of, if you have any type of login forms on your website, again, HTTPS is going to be essential. So number four is one that most people don't really think about, but is quite relevant for pretty much everyone. And that is SEO rankings uh, gains from Google. 
says Google is a big advocate for HTTPS and has announced they see it as a ranking factor. So over at uh, Google's website, they actually have touched on this a little bit. And I'm not going to read the whole article, but I just wanted to touch on briefly some of the things that they actually said. But a little while back, Google actually determined that they're going to count HTTPS in their ranking algorithm. And it says, security is a top priority for Google. We invest a lot in making sure that our services use industry-leading security, like strong HTTPS encryption by default. That means that people using Search, Gmail, and Drive, for example, automatically have a secure connection to Google. Beyond our own stuff, we're also working to make the internet safer more broadly. A big part of that is making sure that websites people access from Google are secure. For instance, we have created resources to help webmasters prevent and fix security breaches on their sites. We want to go even further. At Google I.O., a few months ago, we called for HTTPS everywhere on the web. We've also seen more and more webmasters adopting HTTPS, also known as HTTP over TLS or transport layer security, on their website, which is encouraging. For these reasons, over the past few months, we've been running tests taking into account whether sites use secure encrypted connections as a signal in our search ranking algorithms. We've seen positive results, so we're starting to use HTTPS as a ranking signal. For now, it's only a very lightweight uh, signal affecting fewer than 1% of global queries and carrying less weight than other signals such as high-quality content while we give webmasters time to switch to HTTPS. So as Google is mentioning on their site, right now it's pretty lightweight in the ranking algorithm, so it's not something that's going to heavily sway it one way or another. But a big reason to jump on you know, before this is, to, is because they're kind of hinting here. They're giving you a little bit of a nod that that's going to start to change. Obviously, they say high-quality content is by far and will probably always be the highest ranking factor, but it's good to know that moving forward, as HTTPS starts becoming more and more prominent, they are going to be using that more and more as a ranking factor, uh, especially moving forward. And number five is the need for speed. It says HTTP2 is only available over HTTPS. Want to see the speed difference live? Check it out here, and they've got a link to a site that actually shows you some of the differences. So not to go too far into a lot of the technical details, but I will give you just a quick idea if you've never heard of HTTP2. Uh, it's just a second version, as you might imagine. It's HTTP 2.0, I guess is what you could call it. And it was actually originally developed by Google, and it was just a more lightweight, faster version of HTTP, which is being adopted now. Uh, and you may start to see it kind of overtake the normal HTTP that we're used to. The bottom line is all the technical aspects aside, it's just faster and it's more secure. But the only way that it's going to work, that you're actually going to be able to take advantage of this new technology as it becomes available with new browsers, is to make sure that you have an SSL certificate. So I do actually have this page up over at rightlydesigned.com. So if you'd like to just go to rightlydesigned.com slash podcast or rightlydesignedshow.com slash 44, you can actually read through this. And you can see some of the links if you want to watch live the differences between HTTP and HTTPS in terms of some of the speed and some of the extra uh, ranking factors and all the details that go into that. You can check out that article over there. Um, but if you're wondering right now, you know, you might be wondering, okay, so maybe I do need to look into getting an HTTPS connection for my website. I need an SSL certificate. 
And the best way to go about doing that, especially if you're not necessarily a web developer yourself, you're not real tech savvy, best thing to do is just check with your hosting provider. So a lot of times what they'll do is they'll actually offer an SSL certificate that you can just tack on to your current hosting. And they'll usually walk you through a process of how to install it, or they'll just do it for you. It really just depends. Uh, one of the things you can also do uh, is if you don't have hosting, if you're looking to switch, what I typically recommend to people who are using WordPress, which as if you've listened to the show, you know I, I re highly recommend WordPress if it's uh, for pretty much any website. Uh, but if you're using WordPress, uh, I typically recommend the uh, Media Temple's WordPress hosting. And their WordPress hosting is extremely easy to use. And you can actually, with a couple of clicks and through a couple of, with their step-by-step -step guides, you can actually just, in a couple of easy steps, install an SSL certificate. And they've got great support as well. It always uh, helps walk you through if you ever get stuck. So if you don't already have hosting, if you're looking to switch, I'd recommend Media Temple. Uh, and if you'd like to check out their WordPress hosting, you can check that out at rightlydesigned.com slash media temple. So today's main topic that I wanted to touch on uh, and get into a little bit of detail today was pricing tables. So pricing tables are those things that you see all over the internet. If you are, if you've ever purchased, you know, Dropbox, or if you've ever purchased all these different online services or subscriptions or courses or Pretty much everything online right now has a pretty similar structure in the way that it's sold. So we're going to be going through some of the best practices and things you can keep in mind when you start to create your own pricing tables, selling your own digital products, or selling your own online services. But before I do that, I wanted to take a quick moment today to mention today's sponsor, and that is FreshBooks. So I've been using FreshBooks myself for a couple of years now. And I have never even considered switching to anything else. If you are personally somebody who has clients or you track expenses or you do any type of invoicing, I highly recommend FreshBooks, especially as tax season is starting to roll around. It's really helpful to have those uh, different reports and things all calculated and brought together for you so you don't have to, you know, mess with a whole bunch of different spreadsheets or all these different things that you have to do and finagle with on your own when it comes to tax season. So FreshBooks makes that really, really simple. So they've got tons of different reports that you can pull together and print out and save as PDFs or CSVs or whatever you need. They also recently did a massive facelift. So they completely redesigned the interface and I thought it was great before. Um, but they made it even better. So it's more intuitive. It's faster. You can manage multiple businesses or multiple FreshBooks accounts from one login. So they've greatly streamlined the process. They've made uh, invoicing beautiful and easy and secure and easy to work with. So if you are interested in checking out FreshBooks, they're going to offer you as a listener to the Rightly Designed show a 30-day free trial. So you can jump in there, test it out, see if it's for you. I think you'll really like it, especially if invoicing is something that you do regularly. So if you'd like to check that out, you can go to gofreshbooks.com slash rightly designed. Again, that's gofreshbooks.com slash rightly designed and enter rightly designed in the how did you hear about us section. Have a question for the show? Feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question or call 
Okay, so today's main topic that we're going to go over is pricing plans or pricing tables as they're also known and some of the tips that you can take away when it comes to building your own pricing tables. So I'm not going to dive into specifically how to calculate what to charge. That's a whole nother can of worms that we may dive into in another full length episode. Um, what I'm going to focus on more today is more of the design and some of the usability standards to keep in mind as you begin building your pricing tables. So before I dive into some of these tips, I think it's important to take a quick moment to consider at what point would you want pricing tables, right? And this is going to become relevant if you are going to be uh, selling any sort of digital product or any sort of online service. So this doesn't really work if you're selling like an ebook or if you're selling a physical book, or if you're selling a t-shirt, or most physical products, this doesn't really work. This works pretty well if you're selling uh, something that, you know, like an online course, something that would have tiered pricing, that's when you're gonna get into a digital product. So it's or into a pricing table. Digital products specifically can have a use for pricing tables, but you're gonna find it a lot more commonly with online services. So as I mentioned before, you're gonna see this with like Dropbox and ConvertKit, and you'll see it with Drip and Lead Pages and all these different sites. And you'll notice as you start going through some of them, if you're not familiar with them already, you can click around to a number of these different services and you'll begin to see some similarities. A lot of these people use the same type of layout, same type of principles and structures and the way that they arrange things. So I'm going to highlight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight some of those things here today. Uh, and there was actually a really good list that was put together by someone named Vitaly Friedman, and he's the editor-in-chief over at Smashing Magazine. If you're not familiar with Smashing Magazine, Smashing Magazine has been around for a while. They kind of pioneered the web development and web design blogging sphere. They were really pretty much the first on the scene to start blogging in that sphere and pretty much exploded from there. But he's a really experienced usability expert and uh, web, uh, web designer. And what he did is he put together just this list of 24 items that were pretty solid in terms of really, uh, really strong usability practices when it comes to putting together these pricing tables. So these apply even if you're not necessarily going to be designing and actually coding out your own pricing tables. What I will actually touch on after I go through some of these is a plugin that you can use. And there's tons of other plugins and services that you can use to build your pricing tables. So don't think that as we're going through these that you necessarily have to be able to code these out. These are things that you can work directly into your website with a number of different tools out there, many of which are actually free. But these are some things to consider, and it's a very important part of your purchasing process. So if you are or you're planning on selling digital products or an online course uh, or something in that sphere or just some sort of online service and you want to tear out your pricing, these things can actually have a pretty big impact in making sure that the, the sales process is as effective as possible. Part of what actually got me onto this subject myself is that if you're a listener for the show, you uh, listener of the show for a while, you know that I actually design and develop themes over at a, a site or at a company called Notable Themes. And one of the things we've been experimenting with a little bit is doing some tiered pricing with the way that we offer. Uh, we're kind of blending together a little bit the actual um, premium WordPress themes with some design and development 
uh, services in addition to buying the theme itself. So that's opened up the, the a window of opportunity for being able to incorporate some tiered pricing. So I've been doing an, a, a lot of research myself and experimenting with what different usability practices seem to work best. And that's when I came across this list. And it's, it has a good outline. It's a really good foundation for getting the basics or actually getting a pretty good in-depth look at what makes uh, some good practices to keep in mind when it comes to building out your pricing table. So I'm just going to start by going through those one by one. Uh, as you'll notice as I go through them, there's a number of them that will apply specifically to different types of things that are being sold. Um, so you'll kind of one of the, this isn't necessarily a checklist that you say I have to do all of these things. It's more like pick the ones that are going to work best for your unique setup and the specific thing that you're trying to sell or provide. So number one is to highlight a recommended option. So before we go any further, uh, if you're not too familiar with what how pricing tables are typically laid out, um, I mentioned a number of different examples previously. So if you've been to any of those sites, you know, if you've purchased a plan on Dropbox or, you know, you've purchased something at lead pages, you've seen this before. But if not, it's typically three columns. And the way that it's typically laid out is you've got those three columns and it's got a list of features and a price and each column has its own name that differentiates it from all the other ones. So, you know, this is the light package. This is the plus package and this is the pro package, right? That would be three different columns that would appear in this pricing table and that's pretty standard. So number one is they're saying highlight a recommended option. What most people do is they highlight the middle one. Usually the light package is for people who are starting out. The middle one is the recommended one. Sometimes people will say uh, this is uh, the most popular, which if you're going to say it's most popular, make sure it actually is the most popular and you're not just saying it is. I've noticed that before. A lot of people just say it's popular, but it may not actually be the case. And then the third one is typically your higher tiered option. So what they're saying is kind of point people in the right direction. Uh, human nature and people who are you know starting starting out and trying something new for the first time, they're going to scale towards the very lightest option possible. But if the middle one actually is going to serve the needs best of most people, then it may be a good idea to recommend that middle one. Number two, they say allow users to switch currency. Now, this is an interesting tip. And it's really, this is one of those ones that's going to be pretty contingent on where you're selling, right? So if you are doing a lot of international sales, then this may be more important than it would be if you are not. If you're doing a lot of, if you live in the United States and most of your sales are going to be done in the United States, maybe this might not be as big a deal. But if you want to kind of think long term in terms of being able to serve a wider audience, that would be pretty helpful. Number three, allow users to switch pricing between monthly and yearly. So this will first depend upon whether or not you're actually going to allow people or provide people the opportunity to subscribe or pay to your pay for your service on a monthly or yearly service. And of course, this only applies if you're selling something that is recurring. Sometimes people are just selling a one-time fee, in which point, at which case, this wouldn't uh, this wouldn't actually apply. But number four, keep the entire pricing plan area clickable. So what this means is that when most people have a pricing plan. Uh, they've got a call to action, buy now or start now or something like that. And usually just that, that button is clickable. So uh, one of the tips here, and again, this, this works in some cases, in some cases it doesn't. On the pricing table I've been building recently, I didn't do this, but I can understand the thought behind doing it. And his, his point is make the entire column 
including the price, all of the, the, the features and benefits, make the whole thing clickable rather than just the button. That way, if somebody can just click any of those columns to actually start the process, again, it's a minor detail, but probably a good idea for usability and making sure that it's as super easy as possible for people to move uh, in the direction they're looking to go. Uh, use a slider to calculate how much a user would save. So this, again, is going to be pretty contingent on the type of service being provided. However, if this is something that you're able to do, I don't personally know of like a free resource that will enable you to do this. This is more custom development territory, but it is pretty effective. I've seen this on ConvertKit. I don't know that ConvertKit does this on their current website, but they used to. And what they'd enable you to do is slide back and forth between how many subscribers you had they that you had when you're subscribing when you're purchasing their their service. So if you're not familiar with ConvertKit, they're actually an email marketing uh, email marketing service provider, and so their pricing would change based upon the number of subscribers you had. So what you'd be able to do is slide back and forth and be able to see the price change live, and they'd also have you know how much you are saving if you you know had more subscriptions. So again, it's an idea. It may not apply to the type of service you're providing, but again, a very creative way to make it more uh, easy and visual for the user to be able to purchase from you. Uh, number six, provide the first month for free uh, for good uh, engagement. Again, this is one of those things that's only going to apply if you're doing subscriptions. So if you're offering some sort of subscription model, this is actually a good way to do things. And it kind of varies. Some people do it so that uh, you have to enter in credit card information. I don't personally like this approach. I don't think that it, it kind of it, it takes advantage of people forgetting that they actually signed up and then having their card charged and then having to go back and ask for a refund. And it just cre it opens up a door for a a very negative experience with that customer and with your company, and it eats up your time. If they really want the service. Uh, if they really, you know, if they're, if it's something that they really want to use, then they will pay you for it. Um, it's enough just to give them the opportunity to try it out. I've actually noticed this. It's a great service, um, but they they kind of do the, uh, they kind of uh, apply that, uh, enter your credit card information for the 15-day free trial, and that's lynda.com. So again, it's a great service, but you have to enter in your credit card information. And again, it just creates this, this, opportunity for a problem to actually take place for that customer so that you know again a lot of people just sign up they try it out for a couple of days and they decide they don't want it and people forget and then they get their card charged again so kind of went through that a great way to do it is just to provide them a way to be able to create an account uh, you know to create an account to start using the service or to start using the product or whatever it is uh, and just have it expire or lock out you know until they enter in credit card information credit card information that way you don't have to worry about again charging them when they don't want to be charged and opening up a whole can of worms from that situation uh, number seven prominently highlight testimonial uh, testimonials so again this isn't so much having to do with these uh with the pricing table itself but again it's a great thing to do to help create some established trust and what it is that you're selling, especially if the people who are providing those testimonials are somebody who is of influence or somebody who is, uh, you know, who is reputable, somebody recognizable, and somebody who has something to do with the specific thing that is being sold. So the next one is number eight, 
repeating call to action, repeating a call to action on the top and bottom. So this is a pretty good practice, something I've actually worked on the uh, added to the pricing tables I've created recently. If you've got a buy now button, it's typically a good idea to add it to the top and the bottom, especially if the list of benefits that you're going to be including in each column is going to be uh, it's going to be fairly long. If there's going to be require any type of scrolling, again, you want to make the process for somebody who's ready to purchase that product or service as quick and as easy as possible. Uh, number nine, sell benefits instead of features. This is more of a philosophical point. This is more of a strategic point rather than a designer usability point, but it is true. When you're listing things out, you want to you want to as much as possible. Sometimes it's it's not always possible. You have to list out a feature. Um, but as much as possible, you want to list out the benefit. What's the transformation that that's going to provide to the person? What's the problem that it's going to solve? What's the pain that it's going to cure? You know, what's, what is it that it's going to help them do? You know, it's, you know, not widget one, widget two, widget three, um, because everybody sells a pro, you know, everybody out there sells a product, you know, or sells a thing, but what is it that, what problem is it going to solve for them? So the more you can lean to benefits over, uh, features, the more persuasive and more compelling that particular pricing, uh, the pricing table is going to be. Number 10 is indicate that users can cancel at any time. So any way that you can instill, uh, make the purchasing process for someone as risk-free as possible, uh, the better. So if that includes being able to cancel at any time, that works. Again, that's going to be more specific to something like a subscription. But if you're selling a product or you're selling an online course or something that's maybe a one-time payment, you can offer a 15 or 30 or even 60-day money-back guarantee. That's a great way to instill trust and confidence in somebody who may be kind of on the fence or wavering. That may let them know that, okay, well, this isn't a risk. If for whatever reason it goes wrong, I don't have to worry about eating the cost uh, of this particular product or service. Indicate which, uh, which group each place, uh, pricing plan is for. So this is a good one. And sometimes uh, this isn't something that you can necessarily do. It, it depends. You have to really know who your audience is and be able to segment them out. So the example we used here is freelancers. So for example, if you were selling to designers, you could say uh, freelancers, you could say small team, and then like firm or something like that. Something that shows that, that demonstrates like who should buy this particular package? Who's it for? Um, I think a, a while back, FreshBooks actually did like the seedling and then they did like, because again, they're, if you've never seen their logo before, it's a leaf. So they've got kind of the tree theme going. So they did, uh, they did the seedling and then they or the sapling and then they did like, um, you know, they did, the, I can't remember what the, the next tree was. And then they did like the mighty oak. So it, there's more themed to fit their brand. Other people... Uh, will typically try to list out with each package who it's specifically for. So rather than just saying, again, light, premium, and pro, you know, they say freelancers, uh, teams, and agencies, or something like that, that helps people who are in those different categories know exactly which package to go for. Again, that's going to depend if your packages are nailed down that well to a specific segment of your audience. That works great. Otherwise, it uh, uh, it may not be the best way to go. Number 12, avoid mentioning account anywhere. And I think this is a really good point. And this isn't something I've really heard mentioned anywhere else, but I think it's really worth considering. Uh, and the point they make is that nobody wants to create an account, which is absolutely true. 
When somebody goes to sign up for ConvertKit, they're not going to ConvertKit to create an account. They're going to ConvertKit to start uh, building their email list, right? So instead of saying create an account, say start building your email list. So create, so that it might seem like a minor detail, but again, these are the little things that help push people into the direction of actually buying. Their goal, they don't want to pay you to create an account. They want to pay you to start building their email list or they want to pay you to start, you know, providing tax advice or whatever it is that you're providing them. Make that the call to action rather than something generic like creating an account. Number 13 on mobile, turn pricing plans into accordions. So accordions, what they're talking about is if you are, uh, if you've ever used Slack, they do this pretty well. Um, but it kind of, it collapses, so it's responsive, so that when somebody is scrolling up and down, it always makes, uh, it always maintains a specific heading so that you can see uh, from right to left, you can see that there is, you know, which specific uh, package you're currently viewing. It always remains at the heading, so you don't lose track because when you're on a mobile phone and it's one column and you can't see all three columns in one view, it gets a little bit tricky and sometimes things can get lost. So again, that's a little bit more of a developmental and designed aspect to creating this pricing table, but uh, it's a pretty good thing to keep in mind if it's at all possible. Uh, small commitments are better than big ones. So this is, again, a little bit more of a philosophical point and one that I personally actually don't agree with. So again, the, the, the point was small commitments are better than big ones. This is totally going to depend upon what it is that you're providing. Uh, it's not necessarily true that just because something is a smaller commitment, it's a better one. Uh, for example, a small commitment would be buying an ebook for, let's say, $9.97. So that would be a small commitment. However, the transformation and the value provided in that ebook might be considerably smaller than a $9.97 course. Now, that $9.97 course, while it's more expensive and while it may be a larger commitment, may be exactly what the people who are visiting that page are interested in and are wanting. And again, may provide a higher level of value and may provide a higher level of transformation for that person actually purchasing, purchasing that course. So again, I, I would never you know, say that one is necessarily better than the other, that a small commitment is better than a big one. It all depends on what it is that's being sold on that page and the people who are specifically visiting that page and how interested they are in that product or that service. Uh, number 15 is allow users to switch table and slider views. This is a little bit more on the complex, complicated side. Uh, earlier, one of the things that were mentioned, you'd be able to do a slider if you want to, uh, you know, allow somebody to switch, you know, left to right and actually see all the different you know, pricing specific to, I don't know, uh, subscribers. This is, again, a little bit more uh, uh, specific to one type of subscription model. So it could be great in some instances, but not quite a generic thing that most people would use. Number 16, highlight selected slash tapped uh, row column in a table. This is specific to mobile. So if somebody's going to be using uh, a tablet or a smartphone of some sort, uh, it can actually... If somebody has actually selected one, now this is going to be if you're not just going to have a button that someone clicks and takes them to a checkout page, if you want them to be able to select between them before hitting a checkout button, you just, again, this is a usability and design thing. You just want to make sure that that is highlighted. I don't think this one's quite as essential, but a great way to make sure that it's actually responding to the user's input. Number 18, allow users to select features of interest. 
So this is actually a, a unique one. I actually haven't seen this in a lot of different pricing tables out there. But if somebody can do this well, I could see how it'd be pretty effective. So what you'd be able to do is actually allow someone to go through and check the specific features or benefits that they find most useful and relevant to them. Now, the question would be there, do you then adjust the price based upon that or just use it as a tool that makes it a little bit easier for them to determine which features they want to focus on or know about? Don't know. I think you could incorporate it both ways, but definitely an interesting thing to keep in mind and to consider for doing a pricing table. Uh, number 19, allow users to configure their own pricing plans. So, so congruent with the previous point, this again would be a pretty new approach or a kind of a different approach to creating these different pricing tables. And rather than, a, than just having a static list of features, you could allow people to go through and check just the ones that they want and to provide a price based upon that. So an interesting concept. I don't think it's more, it's very mainstream and it would work for everyone. But uh, again, when it comes to creating user experience, some of this is just determining what you're selling, what it is that you're trying to provide and what's the best possible way to display that information for them. Number 20, allow users to compare all features in a full screen mode. So if you are, this is going to be more specific to a really technical or detail oriented product. So if you're selling a digital product or a line of digital products or even a physical product, this could come in pretty handy. You'll see this a lot of times with uh, if you're going to be buying, you know, a laptop or a television or something that has a lot of tech specs, a lot of times they will allow you to compare models. And this just turns into a pretty big grid. Uh, so you can have more, at this point, you can have more than just three columns. You can have seven columns or ten columns. And just a lot of times what it is is the products at the top and then the features or benefits off to the left, and it's a big old chart. So it's just an expanded view. So if somebody really wants to dig into the features, they can see that at a little bit uh, more of a detailed view. Number 21, potentially use tabs at the top and bottom for comparison. Again, this one's a little bit... Uh, more obscure in terms of how most people are going to create pricing tables, but something worthy of consideration. Number 22, make sure each, each section drops a bit of delight. And so really what he's saying here is this comes from more of a design perspective. He's talking about, you know, the design, the way that these are actually designed, make sure that they're clean and clear and they actually uh, fit in well with the design, I think is a major point there. Number 23, provide a way out if a user isn't interested. And I thought this was a really creative idea. So you provide a way out if a user isn't interested and used as an example, buyer books instead. So if you're selling a product that's a little bit higher end, or even if it's not, and you've got people who are interested but aren't necessarily ready to buy, maybe provide them with something free instead. So provide them with like a free ebook or, or something on the same subject that you can use to maybe capture their email list or to get them into some sort of drip workflow that ensures that even if they're not ready to purchase your product right now, you can get them in some sort of you know workflow or some sort of drip campaign or something that nurtures them to a point where maybe later on, when they're ready to buy, they'll they'll come back to you for that particular service or that particular product. And number 24, this is the last one he has on the list. In a form, display at most four to six input fields at a time. So this is going to be incredibly important when it comes to your checkout process. There's a lot of websites out there that make the checkout process way more intensive and difficult than it needs to be. Now, a lot if you're going to be selling a, a physical product that you need to ship to someone, 
there's not a lot of ways, there's not really many ways around that. You have to collect shipping and billing information. Of course, you can, uh, you can typically consolidate the shipping and billing information by adding a checkbox that says, you know, use shipping as billing address or vice versa. If you use WooCommerce, I know WooCommerce has that, uh, that feature built in which is extremely helpful a lot of times for users. But if you're selling a digital product or a course, the best thing to do is to, is to require as little payment information as you possibly can. This just ensures that it creates the least amount of friction possible for somebody when they're actually purchasing your product. You'd be amazed at how simple, uh, like the smallest things can actually prohibit someone from, from finishing a purchasing process. So that's it for that list. I'd highly recommend if you are currently working uh, on any type of pricing structure or pricing table, uh, I'd highly recommend you go through it. You can even print this list out and go through it. It just gives you a lot of great ideas and tips. Again, everything doesn't necessarily work for every situation, but it gives you some really good ideas. A couple of other ones I'll just toss in there that I've noticed as I've been building my own pricing tables is there's a couple of other things that you can do to make the overall appearance and readability really congruent as well. So one of the things I've started working in is actual icons, so check marks that go next to each of the items or each of the features or benefits that go along with that. I think the check marks just kind of help provide a little bit of a visual indicator that make it clear that this is one of the things that's in this particular package. Another thing too is to make all three columns even. So this is just something I've tried to do personally. I've noticed a lot of these pricing tables that you've got the one on the left is the shortest and the one on the right is the longest or you know some are longer, some are shorter, and it's just a little bit awkward. So one of the ways I've solved that problem personally is I've made the very highest tiered package uh, the same all the way across the board, except... The smaller packages that don't include the things that are in the higher packages are grayed out or are kind of disabled and they're, you know, they don't have the check mark next to them and they're kind of faded out. So you can still see them there, but you realize that it's not part of this package. So that's just a small way that you can actually incorporate a little bit of symmetry and balance to the overall design. And these are things that are going to make a, a real big difference when it comes to being able to read, a, read this really simply and easily. I've seen a lot of pricing packages, and again, this works for, for most cases, but I've seen a lot of pricing packages that shows the middle one, since it's typically recommended or most popular, as the biggest column, and then the two on the right and on the left are the smaller ones. So again, that works just fine if that's going to be something that, if the middle package is the one that you want to push the most or you want to recommend. Uh, but if you want it to be balanced and a little bit more readable, uh, having them all the same length tends to help with that. So it's a little bit hard to describe over audio. So if you'd like to check that out, I have actually left a link to that specific page, which includes the pricing table in it uh, over at the today's show notes, which again, you can find at rightlydesignedshow.com slash 44. And one other thing I did want to take a quick moment to mention, because I mentioned it earlier in the show, uh, is how you can actually incorporate some pricing tables into your site if you are using WordPress and you're not necessarily able to code or you know write one of these things out yourself. So there's actually a free plugin 
that you can install called Responsive Pricing Table. And they have incorporated a lot of the different things that we've discussed already. Not quite everything, but some of the basics and some of the main features that you would need. And again, as it indicates in the title itself, it is responsive, which means that it will adapt to different screen sizes, which is going to be essential. So if people are shopping on a tablet or on a smartphone, they're able to navigate that well and they don't have to pinch and zoom or do anything weird like that. So it covers a whole bunch of different available fields. Uh, this one I think I've used a while back, but it's it's been updated somewhat. So to the best of my knowledge, it's a pretty solid plugin. It's got 4.5 out of 5 stars. And again, it is free, so you can just try it out and see if it works for you. There's a number of other plugins out there as well, so you're not really in the dark. It's just one of those things that you have to do a little bit of testing and find which out uh, find out which one works best for you. And again, I do have a link to that in today's show notes, which is rightlydesignedshow.com slash 44. So I hope you found this useful. I thought it was worth going through this checklist a little bit or going through some of these uh, particular uh, strategies when it comes to building pricing tables. Pricing tables are, you know, they're quite the art form, quite the science and quite the art form. So I recommend if you are in the process, again, as I mentioned, if you're in the process of creating some pricing tables, I'd go through this list and take a little bit of time to go through some of the sites and see who see, see uh, what different solutions are working well, what are the most usable, and other ones that are working not so well. So this, again, when it comes to actually selling a digital or an online uh, or an online product of some sort. This is an extremely important piece. I see a lot of people out there who are actually overlooking this or not spending a lot of time fine-tuning the process uh, of that somebody has to go through to, to purchase a product from you. So again, this has to be the absolute smoothest process possible to ensure that the things that you're actually selling uh, are something that people can purchase and go through easily. And as always, if you have a question for the Rightly Designed show, feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question, or you can call 888-727-1496. Again, that's 888-727-1496. If you'd like to call in and record a question that could potentially be featured on an episode, which I would cover at length. So as always, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the program today, and we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com show for links to these channels and more.